Good evening. This is Heartstock Radio, and I am your host, Carol Murphy. Really appreciate everybody tuning in and listening. And we have a little mini hurricane going on outside the window here. That was a little distracting earlier. So please bear with us while we we collect ourselves here. And our guest this evening is Malik Yakini. He is the executive director, Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. And in just a moment, he is going to be with us and share his story. Also remember that you can find our programs listed on Facebook. We always post them in the events section, who's going to be on this week. You can also email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. And just a moment, Malik will be back. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock Radio. I am your host, Carol Murphy, and Clark Grant is manning the board. Our guest this evening is Malik Yakini. Hi, Malik. How are you, Carol? <laughs> I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being our guest this evening. Please, let's just start out with just a, a little intro here and familiarize our listeners with the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, and what you do there as the executive director. Okay, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network is a nonprofit organization serving primarily Detroit's African-American community, and it was started in 2006. Uh, We were started because at that time, most of the people who were doing what could be described as urban agriculture or food justice work in the city of Detroit were white. They were well-meaning white people, but in a city which was overwhelmingly African-American. And when I say overwhelmingly, in 2006, Detroit was probably 83% African-American. So in many ways, Detroit is the blackest city in America. So to have predominantly African-American neighborhoods and to have white nonprofits leading the work was problematic for us for myself and others who became the founders of our organization. Because we think that while we uh, appreciate the support of people who identify themselves as white or people who identify themselves as any so-called racial group, uh, we have a strong unwavering belief that communities should exhibit self-determination. That is that they should lead themselves. They should make the decisions about what functions in their best interest and that other people who want to support that should play a supportive role, not be leading, particularly, you know, within the context of America where racism or what sometimes we call white supremacy is really embedded into the fabric of society. And white people have kind of been trained to lead and to be in charge, and black people have been trained to follow and to almost glorify and deify the actions and the images of white people. And so we think that part of kind of decolonizing our minds is this process of learning how to lead ourselves. 
And so we created uh, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network so that Detroit's African-American population could not only participate in the food movement in a robust way, but also since we're in the vast majority of the population here, that we would be in the leadership of that movement. So since 2006, we've done several things. One of the early things that we did is we spoke before the Detroit City Council and, de- and criticized the city for not having a comprehensive food policy. We were appointed on the spot to head a task force to write such a policy, which we did over a period of about 18 months, and eventually got that unanimously passed by the Detroit City Council, and that still stands on the books as the Detroit Food Security Policy. So one of the things I want to point out is even though our focus is unapologetically on uplifting the African-American community, the reality is that what happens is that when conditions are made better for those who are kind of on the bottom of the economic ladder, that everybody benefits. So in Detroit, there's not a black food policy and a white food policy and a Latina food policy. There's a food policy that was created by the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network that benefits all people who are residents of Detroit as well as people who visit the city. So that's something we did early on. We also were very interested in starting a farm. And so we established D-Town Farm, which is Detroit's largest farm at seven acres. We have a youth program called the Food Warriors Youth Development Program that functions at a church site, which is open to the entire community as long as they're between the ages of seven and 12 on Saturdays, and an after-school program at a school on the east side of the city, which is only open to the students of that school. We also do a lecture series uh, each year, which has been suspended this year because of COVID. But normally we do three to four public lectures a year on topics related to the food system and agriculture. And then finally, the big thing that we're working on now is a project called the Detroit Food Commons, which is a 34,000 square foot building that we're building from the ground up. We haven't started construction yet, but we're hoping to do do that very soon. And the main feature in that building will be the Detroit People's Food Co-op, a cooperatively owned grocery store in Detroit's North End. You've already said so many things that I have questions about. Um, but before we really dig deeply into DBCFSN, what I really want to do is hear about your background. Are you from Detroit originally? And what, what led you to from, this work? Yeah, I am from Detroit originally. And I'm 64, and I'm saying my age because sometimes it helps to place people within kind of an era within human development. And in my case, I think it's really important because I grew up in the 1960s. And so, you know, my views were influenced by kind of the the social activism and the radical thought of the 1960s, because that's the time I came of age in the the late 1960s. So interestingly, I've lived in the same house since 1960. So I was four years old when my family moved into the house I currently stay in. I've raised my children in this house, and I am now a, a grandparent, still living here. And so it's given me a very unique perspective on both Detroit in general and my neighborhood in particular, because I've been in one spot for so long. But specifically in terms of what led me to the work, uh, for 22 years, I led a a school in Detroit, an African-centered school. And when I say African-centered, it was a school that was designed to give African-American children a greater sense of their history and culture and to build their self-esteem and to instill within them a desire to work on behalf of uplifting the communities that they're a part of. And so at that school in about 1999, we started doing really serious gardening 
with the students at the school and we developed a food security curriculum that was implemented school-wide. We really changed the culture of the school so that thinking about food and in all of its uh, aspects, both the nutritional aspects, the cultural aspects, the economic aspects, that all became part of the school culture. And so that's really what led me into kind of the deeper food movement as I became aware of other groups nationally and internationally which are doing similar work. My passion for this work began to grow. And so in 2011, I resigned as director of that school. And uh, I had been a co-founder in, in 2006 of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. And in 2011, I stepped away and came to work as executive director for the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. And you mentioned earlier that one of the things that prompted you to do this was the need for black leadership. But I'm also wondering yes. if you could kind of also paint um, a picture of what the food situation was like in Detroit. I would imagine that that all kind of came together to make you realize that something needed to be done. Was it just the need for leadership and, and why food security? There, it seems there are so many other securities, you know, and, and I'm not belittling right. that well, at all. Yeah, I'm just so trying to help our listeners understand the importance I'll give some, of this. I'll, I'll give some context. Okay. Uh, so in D Detroit, and well, first I'll say in D Detroit that I grew up in, in the 1960s and 70s, there were at least seven national chain grocery stores, all of which had multiple locations in the city of Detroit. So almost no matter where you were in the city, you were within walking distance of a full-service grocery store. By 2006, when we started our organization, there was only one chain left in the, in the city, and that was called Farmer Jack. And by 2007, Farmer Jack closed all of their remaining stores in the city of Detroit. And so there were no national chains in the city, a city of, at that time, maybe 750,000 people. And so that was highly problematic. Yeah. Um, another aspect is that myself and many others have been concerned for many years about the relationship between what we eat and our health. In fact, I've been vegan for probably 40 years or, or close to that. And so, and I'm not on a mission to convert people to veganism, but I am trying to encourage people to be more critical about what they eat and, you know, making uh, better choices, choices that promote optimal health. So, that was another factor, seeing the rates of diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, which are impacted by diet. I don't want to say, you know, that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence that, that those diseases are created by diet or can be, you know, mitigated necessarily by diet. But diet is certainly a factor, a major factor. And so watching the quality and the quantity of life of people around us being reduced at least in part because of what they were eating, was another factor. And then there's the economic factor. So although by 2007 there were no national chain supermarkets, there was uh, maybe 70 or 80 independent grocery stores in the city of Detroit. Not as many stores as there were when I was growing up, but there were still you know, dozens of grocery stores in the city of Detroit. Uh, most of them owned by uh, an ethnic, ethnic group called Chaldeans, uh, Chaldeans are an ethnic minority from Iraq. Iraq is a majority Muslim country. Chaldeans are Christian. And they uh, have been in the United States for at least the last hundred years. But uh, Detroit became kind of a magnet 
for many Chaldean merchants. And so many of the stores that had formerly been operated by these national chains began to be operated by Chaldean merchants. And I, I want to be clear because sometimes people misinterpret what I'm saying. So I'm not anti-Chaldean. I'm not anti-white people. I am pro-black self-determination, just to be clear. But what we had functioning is an extractive economy where people who don't live in the communities own the stores. They rarely hired people from the neighborhoods. They didn't reinvest much into the neighborhoods that they were part of. And so what they were doing is literally stripping millions of dollars out of Detroit's African-American community, money that if we circulate it within our communities, we could build the kind of power and resilience that we need to have vibrant, healthy communities. And so there was this economic aspect as well. And then finally, uh, an aspect that I don't talk about often, there's a spiritual dimension to this work really that uh, motivated us to start the work at the school and also motivated uh, the founding of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. And that is that it's my belief and the belief of some of the other co-founders that human beings, particularly in America, are profoundly disconnected from nature. And being disconnected from nature, we don't really understand how we fit into this miraculous matrix of life. And so gardening is a way, particularly for young people, to get them, to help them realize this connection, not in an intellectual way, but by interacting with plants and interacting with the weather and with insects and seeing how all those factors impact each other. It gives us a greater appreciation of the interconnectedness of nature. And so on that level, that was another, you know, kind of more nuanced reason for us doing this work to try to help people connect with nature to be more whole and thus to come up with solutions to the many problems that we face that are more, more holistic. Mm-hmm. I really like to hear more about how you personally got connected to nature, but we're going to take our break here, a quick music jaunt, and we'll be right back with Malik Yukani. Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and our guest today is Malik Hikani, and we were just talking about the importance of connecting children to nature early on, and I'm just wondering, where'd you get that? Where'd you come up with that information? I mean, a lot of cultures embrace that, but um, was that something in your experience in Detroit, in, in the city? So I think there were a few factors. One was 
as a young child, uh, being in my grandfather's backyard, my grandfather was born in Georgia in 1900, my father's father, and moved to Detroit, like many other blacks, to work in the auto industry in the 1920s. And so there was this huge influx of hundreds of thousands of Southern blacks who migrated to Detroit, to Gary, Indiana, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, to work in, you know, in the industry, primarily steel or automobile industry. And so many of them brought with them the Southern heritage and, you know, gardening or farming, agriculture in some form was definitely part of Southern heritage. Whether you worked in agriculture directly or not, almost everyone had a garden that they grew and used for their home use. And so my grandfather bought, brought that with him from Georgia. And as a child, you know, I would spend time in his backyard with him in his garden. And so that, I, I'm sure, planted the seeds for the work that I'm doing now. But another huge influence was I was in the Boy Scouts as a child. In fact, I went all the way from the Cub Scouts, all the way through the Boy Scouts, through the Explorers, eventually got an Eagle Scout Award. And so as a result of being in the Boy Scouts, I spent a lot of time outdoors camping, hiking, uh, learning wilderness survival, fishing, learning how to build lean-tos and use hatchets and build fires and collect edible plants and all kinds of things. And so I know that had a profound influence on me also. And then the other thing I think I was just really uh, I was kind of just made for this work, you know, for what for whatever reason. I think it's my uh, my life calling. Mm-hmm. And how about your parents? Um, did they know early on that you were going to be an an overachiever? <laughs> you know, my parents were part of a generation of black. So they both of my parents were born in Detroit. So they were first generation Detroiters. My mom they moved from to Detroit from Brinkley, Arkansas, also in the 1920s. But interestingly, her father was a printer. So he didn't come to work in the auto industry, but he came to work in the printing industry, and which he worked for someone else for some years, but eventually got his own business. And so all of my childhood, my maternal grandfather and grandmother owned a printing shop, and I saw them run this business. You know, I saw them working very hard till late at, at night, and they all—they always work for themselves. They never work for anybody else. And so that sense of industriousness and kind of, you know, the uh, spirit of work—I think I—I I inherited from spending time with them. So both of my parents, again, were first-generation Detroiters. They grew up in, you know, the World War II era. My father was in the Navy during World War II, uh, which, uh, as a result of that, later he was able to get the money to buy the house that I live in now as part of the GI Bill. But both were they were high school graduates but they didn't go to college and they both ended up working in the post office which in detroit at that time in many places throughout the country if you got a job in the post office that was considered like a good job and you had a certain degree of stability and so as a result of that they were able to move from the small apartment that we lived in for the first four years of my life off of detroit's notorious 12th street to a neighborhood that was just opening up for black people there was still housing segregation at that time. And so some of those lines were beginning to move and the neighborhood opened up. Um, my father was able to get this loan as a result of having been in the military and they were able to buy a house. So, but they both continued to work at the post office and they both worked there for 30 some years, retired from the post office. And so they were uh, working class and maybe by the you know, by the end of their lives, were upper working class or whatever. I, you know, I don't know. It's kind of hard sometimes to to 
talk about class stratification in the black community because it's it's a dynamic thing. It changes sometimes. You can be uh, at one level at what point, one point of your life and another level, some other point. But um, but they certainly, you know, wanted the best for their children. I have one other brother, and you know, they really stressed education and you know as a as a way of improving your life. Uh, they tried to make experiences like the Boy Scouts available to me. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm very thankful for all of the, all of the love that they poured into me. And I'm sure that, you know, that has a lot to do with, with what I'm doing now. So I think they expected me, uh, to, to do well. And I, you know, I was, I think leadership was culti- cultivated in me from a, a young child. So even in elementary school, I was at one point president of the student council and the captain of the safety patrol. So for whatever reason, you know, people saw some light in me and saw some leadership and tried to try to kind of polish that and nurture it and cultivate it. So, as, you know, as I look back on those times, I was being prepared as a child for the work that I'm doing now. And so the love that my family and my community poured into me helped me to uh, to become the con- hopefully positive contributor to my community that I am now. So paint for us a little bit about... Um how you've seen things change since you began your work in Detroit around food and food security. Um, we've all heard some some pretty bleak stories and seen Detroit in the news. And where are you at now? Well, let me say, first of all, that there's several groups doing this work in Detroit. It's not just our organization. And most of these groups have either a cordial relationship or a working relationship. And so... I think part of our strength in Detroit has been our ability to collaborate. And so as a result of this collaboration, Detroit has more urban gardens than any place else in the United States. So there's a group called the Garden Resource Program that serves as an umbrella for many of the gardens in the city of Detroit. And there's a, officially this year about 1,600 gardens that have registered for that program. And then there's many others who are what we call guerrilla gardeners who don't want to be registered for anything because they might be growing on land they don't own, maybe vacant land that the city owns or whatever. So there's a huge number of uh, gardens in the city of Detroit and small farms, partially as a result of the tremendous amount of vacant land. So Detroit is about 139 square miles and about one third of the city is vacant land. And so on a certain level, we have the opportunity to do agriculture on a scale that most cities just don't have, don't have that amount of vacant land to grow on. So we've seen a tremendous surge in the last 14, 15 years, and many, many more people interested in urban agriculture and related topics because growing food is just one part of it, but we're also trying to really create a localized food system where we can you know, distribute the food, process the food, sell it on a retail level. So there's huge interest, and as a result of the COVID pandemic, there's been more interest in the last four or five months than there has been probably in the last 10 years. Mm. So I don't know if you're aware or not, but our, our community here has had some grassroots efforts trying to establish a co-op. And I imagine that, um, you know, we're not alone. There's a lot of communities out there that see what you're doing and, it, it you know, it's inspirational. So advice for us and and others out there who would really like to create food security for their own communities? Uh, Well, yeah, so the advice would be starting a co-op 
the first thing to do is build a really strong base of people who want to see this happen. And we, we didn't, we learned that lesson the hard way because when we started, we really focused much more on getting the real estate, getting the financing for the building because we wanted to do this kind of almost grocery store, a grocery store, you know, that looks like a Whole Foods or something, not the kind of storefront co-op that we had in Detroit in the, in the seventies, but really something that was more competitive with what grocery stores are today. So we put way too much energy into the building and the real estate and the financing and should have really put much more energy initially into organizing people. So that would be my advice to focus on building that base first, because when you build a base and you have many more workers who can do the work that's necessary for all the kind of minutia that goes into planning a grocery store and all the minutia that goes into the real estate and preparing that real estate to accommodate a grocery store. So if you have a, a team, a working team, you're in a much better situation than just having a small group of people trying to push the project forward. And just how do you get funding as a nonprofit? How, how are you making all this happen? So we, of course, write for grants, like most nonprofits do, to foundations. And we have a few foundations that seem to really like our work, like the Kellogg Foundation has been our primary funder for the last 10 years. And, you know, frankly, some, some folks are scared of our uh, kind of our analysis and our unflinching, you know, calling out of white supremacy. And they, they kind of deal with us with a long handled spoon. But Kellogg Foundation has an explicit uh, uh, commitment to racial justice. And so they kind of get what we're doing on a deeper level. And so they've been very supportive of our work. But there's been a number of other foundations also that, uh, that we've applied to. And, you know, we've gotten some USDA grants. But also, in, particularly in the last uh, four or five months, we've gotten many unsolicited donations because there's uh, an increased interest both in creating resilient localized food systems, but also as a result of the police murder of George Floyd and the protests. There's tremendous interest now in how foundations can shift their funding to build more power in African-American communities. And so we've gotten several unsolicited donations uh, over the last few months. And, uh, you know, we just hope that this kind of shift in philanthropy continues after the protests die down and after we reach whatever the new normal looks like, you know, as we hopefully come out of this COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. We've got about two minutes. And what I was hoping we could really hear about now is what lays ahead for the future for you guys. Well, the the big project, of course, is this 34,000-square-foot building, the Detroit Food Commons. And so it's about a $15 million project, and we're trying to close the funding gap. We have about $3 more million to raise, but we're, we're very optimistic about that. In fact, there's a meeting next week uh, that the Detroit representative from the Kellogg Foundation is calling with about five other foundations in Detroit who are interested in collaborating to uh, fill that gap. So... We think that this store is going to be a game changer because it will be a consistent retail outlet for Detroit growers. It will be a full service grocery store for people in the neighborhood who don't have much access to high quality. It will be an, an important example of cooperative economics in a city where the major style of development is wealthy white developers buying buildings or building buildings and the majority population really having no stake in them. And so we're really trying to shift people's thinking about economics, about the role that food plays in the development of a city 
and how we as human beings relate to each other in a different way. And then finally, we're trying to increase production at our farm and become more efficient and build stronger bonds with our community. Mm-hmm. And how might our listeners reach you? So we do have a website, and that's www.dbcfsn.org. Again, that's www.dbcfsn.org. I personally feel very inspired and hopeful because things we can do better. <laughs> and yeah, on that absolutely. Note, we, yeah, we have to do better. We have to, yeah. And on that note, yeah. thank you so much for being our guest here on Heartstock. And uh, we shall thank be you, back. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. We shall be back next week as usual. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our live programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. Let's turn